From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When police shot and killed a man with paranoid schizophrenia in Rangeley last year, it raised serious questions about what happened. What led to his death would be a series of cracks in the system that kept his mental illness from being recognized and treated before it came to a head. The story is one shrouded in rumors and secrecy. Then, a cross-stitcher who feels she puts souls at ease. Anytime I come across an unfinished like stitching project at an estate sale, I buy it and I finish it. And I know that, like, okay, that person can go to wherever they need to go now. How an unfinished quilt became an enormous collaborative art project. And a filmmaker who explores the way screens and depression are linked in her own family. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Last year, a man with paranoid schizophrenia was shot and killed by police in Rangeley, Colorado. It was the first police-related death in the town since 1981. After months of reporting, Susan Green from the Colorado Independent and Nikki Turner from the Rio Blanco Herald Times found that there was much more to this story. Nikki, Susan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Rangeley is in northwestern Colorado. It's about a four-hour drive from the metro Denver. Nikki, for those who haven't been there, tell me about the town. It's one town in a two-town county, developed really on oil and gas in the late 40s. About 2,300 people, um, pretty close-knit community. A lot of boom and bust in their economy, a lot, so a lot of pressure and a lot of change based on what's going on with industry. So the story is about Daniel Pierce. He moved to Rangeley in the summer of 2018. He lived there for just a few months, and he was killed in December. What led to his death? What led to his death would be a series of cracks in the system that kept his mental illness from being recognized and, and, and treated before it came to a head. And so he ended up... Uh, stealing a car, stealing a truck that the police officers were told had a, a weapon in it, and he took off, and they had a high speed, well, not a high speed, low speed, a very low speed chase on a dark highway in December. And at the end of that, in an attempt to keep him from getting back into town, the truck was run off the road, and it just, in the matter of 20 seconds, the situation escalated, and he was shot. And do we know what escalated that situation, what was going on that made the police officer feel threatened? Uh, The police officer who ended up shooting him, the other officer, the chief of police, was standing in a different location in the area and said, I'm going to shoot out the tires. But because the truck that this man had stolen, there was something wrong with the engine, and it was just revving over and over and over again. It was so loud, you you could barely hear anything. So the other officer who shot him didn't hear him say, I'm going to shoot out the tires, but he did hear the sound of the gunshots and then assumed that Pierce had shot either at or shot one of the other officers. So this officer who shot and killed Pierce, his name is Roy Kenny. He actually spoke with you for the story, despite a confidentiality agreement that he signed with the town. And he was open about the impact that the shooting had on him. What did he have to say? Roy Kenny was broken when we met him. He had signed his way into a sort of silence about what happened. And there were lots of rumors, a lot of speculation. It's a small town. 
people knew him. He was the cop that everyone there probably knew the best. And he felt humiliated that, you know, he had lost his job. And this is a man who defines himself by his job. I mean, that's all he ever wanted to be was a cop. And he was a good one. He was humiliated by what he knew were a bunch of rumors and bad information out there. And he's just also a talker and, and a, a, a crier. I mean, he's he's like a, there is this caricature of a, a Western cop, you know, in a rural area, someone who who doesn't want to share his feelings, etc. Roy Kinney cellularly needs to share his story. And this is a complicated story. And, you know, did he absolutely need to kill Daniel Pierce? I think that's very much up for debate. But what he really needed people to know is this man was severely mentally ill. He prodded them into this kind of police chase. He did several things that he perceived was threatening to his own life. He, as as Nikki said, shot him after he believed that Daniel had shot the police chief. He needed that to come out. And and it did come out in the story. He he's not it doesn't necessarily make him look good, but it's the truth. And he needed that truth to come out. And his tone and actually his whole demeanor has changed. I think both of us have noticed it. Nikki's nodding. And since the time we met him and he first started talking to us, and and now that this is published, he just needed this truth to come out, words and all. And the other piece of this story is also mental health training, like we've talked about um, in the story. Ken Davis, a mental health care provider and an advocate for better crisis intervention services, he said that Pierce's death was the result of a perfect storm of circumstances. And this is from your article. He said, this is a man's life. It makes you wonder if uh, the price of a life in a rural area is lower than the price of a life somewhere else. I hate to tell you that the answer is yes. Nikki, what were your thoughts on hearing that? Mental health is, um, I think, overall nationwide, There's there's been a move toward legitimizing, noticing, accepting, taking away some of the stigma around mental health. I think in, in, and I don't think this is just happening in our little corner of Colorado. I think this is happening in rural areas everywhere. Um, we haven't caught up. And so one of the statistics that came out from a, a survey that was in 2017, I think, more, something like 59% of the residents that were surveyed were afraid to go and, and seek mental health treatment or mental health care. They were afraid to talk to somebody about it. That needs to change. That needs to be addressed, and, and people need to be aware that you know this is a problem. We tend to talk a lot in community meetings about, oh, well, we have all of these problems. You know, there's a drug problem. There's a domestic violence problem. There's a child abuse problem. And so many of those problems could be substantially changed for the better if we had improved mental health resources available. Susan, tell me how you came to be involved in reporting the story with Nikki. Yeah, so Nikki and I serve on the Colorado Press Association. She was in town for a board meeting in Denver. We were having beers in my backyard, talking about journalism. Journalists often talk about stories they're working on or which they could work on. And she just mentioned that a man had been killed about six months prior. 
and that the entire police department, as you said, three people uh, were involved, um, that he had been killed by one of them, and that she couldn't, she'd been trying to get the most basic facts about the incident, including also who was running the police department at the time, because ultimately, Lieutenant Kinney and his his boss, the police chief, were fired, forced to retire over this incident. And so the town was totally stonewalling her. And I have some experience with police excessive force in these types of cases. So I offered to help her. I, I don't think either of us expected it to be as deep and broad of a story as it turned out. And Nikki, tell me about that experience of being stonewalled. It's a small town, small community, small newspaper. Newspaper's been there a long, long time. But this was something I hadn't encountered before. Ordinarily, if I make a phone call to somebody and say, hey, you know, I need such and such information, they go, oh, hi, how are you? How's your dog? And then I get the information. This was totally different. I I couldn't even get a response to an email on something that seemed very, not only very basic, but very pertinent to the community as a whole. And so it was frustrating, and I didn't really know, I didn't know where else to go. I didn't know what else to do. And so when Susan said, oh, yeah, I'll help you, I mean, they're, you know, they're a nonprofit. She's taking time out of her work and what she does to come and help us as a team. That was huge. That's something that we absolutely could not have done on our own. I think it's absolutely not acceptable that this town was not answering Nikki's most basic questions about what arguably was the the biggest news story to happen there in 37 years. And I think because the paper is so so small and short-staffed and because Nikki wears five hats there and her daughter three and because they need to sell advertising and they rely on subscriptions, there are all sorts of of forces at play that make people like uh, the powers that be in Rangeley think somehow it's okay to not a- answer her question. Somehow it's okay to not say, hey, who's running the police department? Who's been running the police department for the past six years? They wouldn't even tell her that. This really was as much a story about Daniel Pierce and also the problems with police training and mental health services and crisis services in rural Colorado, as it is about really showing the the town leaders in Rangeley, they cannot stonewall their only news source. In this story, it took months to report and to un- uncover really these, these cracks. Um, after the story has come out, what kind of response have you seen from the community, from the town, from the law enforcement? Uh, I went into this story with fear and trembling because to cover a story like this in a small town and possibly expose things that, you know, aren't the good news gazette type stories um, is, is a risk that we take. You know, we take a risk of losing advertisers and subscribers. And so I was I had a lot of trepidation about about presenting this. And I have been brought to tears several times by responses, both in person and by email, from people who have either called somebody that called my house and and said, you know, thank you for bringing this story out. I have a brother that suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, and we lost him. Or I, I mean, just the number of people who've come out and said thank you for telling this and telling the truth and making this 
known has been amazing to me. You know, we're, we we have this impression that, oh, well, everybody's going to be so angry if you say something that's not very nice. I mean, like like Susan said, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily present any of the players in a glowing light, but people want to know and they and they deserve to know and they deserve to to have that truth presented so that they can disseminate it for themselves. Thank you both, Nikki and Susan, for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Nikki Turner is the editor of the Rio Blanco Herald Times. Susan Green is the editor of the Colorado Independent. They worked together for months investigating the death of a man with paranoid schizophrenia who was shot and killed by police in rural northwestern Colorado. Teenage years are full of big emotions that arise from the dramatic ways the brain and the body are developing. We explore those in our special series, Teens Under Stress. In her film, Screenagers, Next Chapter, Delaney Rustin, a filmmaker, physician, and mom, asks how growing up in a digital age with social media and cell phones affects those emotions, and what strategies for coping and thriving are available to teens, parents, and teachers. Delaney, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. This film is very personal. Your teenage daughter, Tessa, dealt with depression, and you share very vulnerable moments where you both seem pretty hopeless. Although Tessa seems fine on the outside, on the inside she's been really struggling emotionally. Even though I'm a physician and feel competent at work, at home I'm completely lost. I don't know what's going on with Tessa or how best to support her. I know many teens are struggling. And I have a lot of questions about how this relates to our new digital age. Tessa is used to my always filming, and she lets me interview her at times. What are you looking at now, Instagram, Snapchat? Does it make you feel bad or not really? Yeah, sometimes. Why did you decide to explore your family's challenges through a documentary? Well, I had made screenagers looking at the impact of screen time on teens and what families can do to manage it. And that was your first film. That was the first film around this topic. I was meeting a lot of teens who were struggling with emotional issues related to screen time and not. And it really hit home when Tessa, weeks on end, was really having low mood and feeling really bad about herself and not with other people and low motivation. And I decided that I really wanted to understand both what is the impact of screen time on what's happening mentally to our kids and teenagers, but most importantly, what we can do as parents and schools and teens themselves to give them skills on how to handle these emotions. Because frankly, even as a physician, I was really lost on on what to do and how to help Tessa. And as you explored that question... What was interesting in terms of the way screens and phones can affect teens? The key thing, obviously, is that it's not a simple answer. So let me start by saying that because our headlines often are such a scare tactic that what we do is we isolate teens from the conversation because a lot of what's happening for them is, frankly, entertainment or connecting with a good friend. But when I break it down in terms of what is the impact, you really can't get away from the fact that studies show that teens who are on social media a lot do have a higher chance of reporting low emotions. And that's very concerning. 
Now, I think that's a really important point to tease out. And you don't isolate teens from the conversation in your film. You talk to them about the ways that their phones make them feel. And here's what a few of them had to say. If you post something, someone comments something mean or rude on it, makes me upset. Oh, I'm not as skinny as her. I can't afford to go on that trip. You can see if they've opened your Snapchat. If they haven't opened it, and I know that they've opened someone else's, it feels so bad. Guys asking for pictures. They don't want anything to do with me otherwise. It hurt me. I see people doing fun things and then my anxiety just kind of takes over. But you also talked about the positive ways that young people are using their phones. For example, your son, he's tapped into YouTube resources to help him manage chronic pain. So how do you balance that idea when you're talking to teens? How do you help them understand how to better manage their phones and stress? Well, first and foremost, it's really listening to them, hearing them say the things that they do and that makes them feel particularly good. The reality is we don't put much time for those kind of conversations. Um, it's not really happening enough in schools. So teens aren't feeling validated. Um, and that's first and foremost is to hear what, what they have to say. But when we hear from them, then it's kind of also to talk about, well, when is it that it's not really making you feel good. What are those moments? And then from there, well, what are you kind of doing to improve that situation? And you highlight the number of ways that parents and educators, they can help kids manage that stress. And it goes beyond just phones and technology. Here's a moment in your film from a high school classroom having a conversation about building social and emotional skills. Think of a situation where someone might get angry with you, what you'll do to stay calm in that situation. Dana, what was it that you did? You, like, flex every muscle in your body, and then, like, when you let go, it kind of, like, releases stress. <laughs> this class helps remind me of, like, stuff that I should be able to use. Coping skills, like breathing and, like, walking away. So, like we said, that goes beyond phones. Why does it fall to high schools to teach these skills? I think that... When we look at the data, it's clear that school that students really thrive and they actually do better socially, academically, when middle and high schools actually do do these programs. Another thing is that at this moment in time when we are worried about their emotional well-being, I'm really a proponent of giving teens a lot more skills to both help themselves but also help other teens. And one of the stories in the film is actually relates to a mental health club started by students. And it's fascinating, but they're teaching really specific communication techniques that they teach their peers. And they even teach about suicide prevention. So, you know, teens are really, they can have these hard conversations and they, they want them. And in our silos with phones, it's even more important that we create situations where these types of conversations can be fostered. And so part of this is not just teachers at schools helping kids open up, it's peers helping each other open up and talk about those emotions. Absolutely. I've been amazed when I've looked into peer-to-peer -peer resources on this front. While certain schools have small projects and there are a few national ones, it's really been underutilized. And the same, you know, the other fascinating story to me in the 
uh, in next chapter is a program whereby high schoolers are teaching middle schoolers how to work within social media and, most importantly, how to have conversations in person. In fact, one of the uh, teens in the film said, yeah, this is so helpful for me. I've only ever apologized online. I didn't even know how to do it in person. <laughs> and so that's just another it's another skill. But that's so interesting that high schoolers are actually going back and helping the middle schoolers deal with that. Another solution you explored, parents, they're obviously trying to set their kids up for success. But sometimes that help, it actually contributes to kids' stress. And you talked with Jesse Borelli, who is a professor of psychological science at UC Irvine. We tried to develop a task where parents would be tempted to become controlling. So we created a computer paradigm where teenagers are asked to do a complex puzzle. And then what we do during this experiment is we're actually monitoring moms and teenagers' cardiovascular reactivity. What we found was when they stepped in and tried to help their children with the task, they showed decreases in stress, and their children showed increases in stress. Was that hard for you to hear as a parent? Well, it was fascinating to learn about it. Absolutely. The research to me is so interesting that you can measure this physiologic. But boy, I was continually with Tessa stepping in and saying, what can I do? What can I do? And um, problem solving and Every time, it just seemed to make things worse, and I didn't really understand it. So Dr. Borelli's uh, research really basically really changed how I am with Tessa now. So, for example, I will say to Tessa, you know, what solutions are you thinking of rather than just my barging in? And also, you know, let me know if you want me to brainstorm ideas with you. And are there other ways that making this film has changed the way you communicate with your kids, especially with Tessa? Yes. You know, another big one has been I just kept being reactive around my worry around screen time, particularly around, you know, when she's on it, what is she doing? Is it making her feel worse? Is You know, I know there's sites that can promote unhealthy coping skills. And I've really kept the conversation open and I've learned to validate that a lot of what she does is actually helping her to feel better. She goes to YouTubers, for example, who are giving her inspirational advice. I do is focus a lot more on the positives. So when Tessa turns in her phone at night, I say, hon, that's great. You're on top of it. As opposed to the time she forgets to do it, really focusing on those times. So just a, a small change in how we focus our communication. But it makes a big difference. Delaney, thank you so much for being here. It's been great to be here. Delaney Rustin is the director of the documentary film Screenagers Next Chapter. It screens in Aspen and Longmont tomorrow. You can find the schedule of other screenings in Colorado at CPR.org teens. That's where you can also check out the rest of our special series, Teens Under Stress. <laughs> Next, a tale about a $5 investment that led to an art project that, at one point, involved a thousand people. This badass story is taking us from sea to shining sea, and lest anyone get upset about that phrasing, Shannon Downey admits that she's something of an instigator, which might be apparent from the name she's using in creating and presenting her art, Badass Cross Stitch. Hi, Shannon. Hey. 
Also with us is Karen Fraser, who, like Shannon, considers herself a craftivist. Hi, Karen. Hello. Shannon, we'll start with you and your love of estate sales. Tell us about what you found last September when you were out near your home in Chicago. I do love an estate sale, and I happened upon this particular home, and when I walked in the door, uh, on the wall was this absolutely gorgeous, like, hand-embroidered, perfectly presented, framed map of the U.S. with all the state flowers, and I just beelined for it and took it off the wall and started looking at it and realized that this person was a, like, really phenomenal stitcher, and it was labeled $5, (laughs) so I knew I was buying it. It's each state, the state bird, the state flower. It's massive. It's like a king-size quilt. That's huge. But there is is a problem. You have this unfinished quilt now that you've bought for $5, but you're not a quilter? (laughs) I'm not a quilter. So you went on Instagram and you ended up asking for help, and I want to read a part of the post a short story and a request for stitching help. You know my love of estate sales and the fact that I cannot handle stumbling upon unfinished projects. I just know that the person who passed can't possibly rest easy with an unfinished project out there. So you're equating this unfinished quilt with Rita Smith, the woman who started the quilt, her afterlife, essentially. How did you make <laughs> yes. that connection? I mean, that's just I, it's how I feel. I've Anytime I come across an unfinished um like stitching project at an estate sale, I buy it and I finish it. But most of the time we're talking 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you know, it's just like half a pillow or something. And I finish it exactly as the original artist would have as best as I can gauge. But most of the time I just put it into goodwill when it's done because it's not really anything I would want. They're usually like kittens and home sweet home, Bible quotes, things like that. So I just finish them. I put them back in circulation and I know that like, okay, that person can go, can go to wherever they need to go now. When I saw this one, I was like, okay, yeah, there's no way I have to finish this one. So this is not your first time putting souls at ease by finishing their projects. (laughs) It is not. (laughs) So as it turned out, 1,000 people responded to your Instagram post, and you eventually whittled down that number to 100 contributors, each one doing 50 states and another 50 stars. How did you decide who to include? It was actually quite arbitrary and um, just based on immediacy because it was on Instagram. And so all these folks were commenting, commenting, and more were coming in. And, you know, I was trying to scroll back to the first one to sort of get some of those first people, uh, you know, assigned. Um, So it was just, it was sort of chaotic. And I I just randomly selected, um, actually, I randomly selected the 50 states um, and I figured if they were enthusiastic enough to throw out their throw their hat in the ring and, and call out a state that like I'm sure they would figure out how to make it awesome, even if they weren't like skilled stitchers. But then I realized like, oh, there's so many people that want to participate in this. How can I make this even even bigger? And I realized that the stars on the quill were supposed to be um, applique. And I thought, well, if I make those embroidery, then we have 50 more people that can participate. So to talk about people who requested specific states, let's bring in Karen Fraser. Karen, you live in Sleepy Hollow, New York, but when you reached out to Shannon, you asked if you could have Colorado. Why? Yes, Um, because I grew up in Colorado, and I always think about Colorado, so any chance I get to reconnect, I do. You grew up in Pueblo. I know that you're also part of another project Shannon's working on that we'll talk about later, but tell me about what it meant to you to be a part of this quilting project. 
Um, much like Shannon, I'm one of those people that haunts actually thrift stores looking for unfinished projects in, with that need to finish that project for pretty much the same reason Shannon does. So as soon as I saw the post about this project, I had to be part of it. Um, so I got really excited, and then I saw that over 100 people at that point had already replied to her. I'm like, oh, man, she's probably got everything assigned already, but I'll ask anyway. And I specifically asked for Colorado in the hopes that hopefully I would, you know, hopefully get Colorado, but if not, get something else she wanted to hand me. Have you finished Colorado yet? Oh, yeah. It's already in Shannon's hands. Tell me about what you included in the state that really brought it home for you. Um, There's a couple of things that I did just to be different. I did the bird, the, the lark bunting, in female plumage instead of male which, of course, complicated the bird a lot, and there were more colors involved. The other thing I did was um, Rita was a big fan of French knots, so I put a French knot where Pueblo is on the map because the the map only required that you put a star where the capital is, Denver. So I did a star for Denver, and I did a French knot for Pueblo. Because that's your hometown. Because that's my space. Now, Rita Smith, she was 99 when she died. How do you envision her? I actually have a picture of her now. <laughs> um, An actual picture. Yeah. Well, when I was leaving the estate sale, I wrote down the address of the house that I was at, thinking, like, oh, I'll do a little research and see if I can find out um, who this person was. And I found out a little bit of information. I knew she was 99, that she passed this um, this past August, that her name was Rita Smiley Smith. Um, and then once the stitchers started communicating uh, in our little Facebook group, I put that information in there and I was like, you know, if anybody's a researcher, have at it. Um, And a few folks dove right in and were able to find all sorts of information about her. She was a school nurse. Her mom was from Canada. She lived in and around Chicago her whole life. She took care of her husband for the, you know, the last 15 years of her life before he passed. And then I was able to talk to her son uh, via email and learn that she was sort of a ferocious crafter and she did everything from, you know, embroidery to upholstery and sort of was always working on something, uh, which is sort of exactly how I pictured her. And then uh, we found her high school yearbook photo. So I have this absolutely darling photo of her from high school. Karen, how did you think about her while you were stitching your piece? Uh, Well, one of the things, I actually volunteer at the local historical society and my fascination is always with um, women's handiwork and just the history of that and how it's such a common thing for so many women to make things but to not be seen as artists, but they really are. And their items are usually everyday things like dish towels and quilts and things like that. So just the idea that I was part of this huge project with all of these women was really, it really meant a lot to me because this is art and this is history. Shannon, what will you do when this quilt is completed? Uh, So we're going to have a pop-up show in Chicago um, because I wanted to be able to show it here um, before I send it out. But um, I'm super, super excited. Um, The National Quilt Museum is going to debut it, um, and we're going to have a huge event. We just confirmed March 7th, and it will stay up through their quilt show at the end of April And then at the end of April, it will come back to me, and then it's going to tour the country with me in my RV. And this brings us to another project that you're working on, Shannon. It's called Badass Her Story. Tell me a little bit about that. 
it's probably going to be my life undertaking this particular project. I really wanted to create a craftivism project that was like self-focused, meaning the contributors were focusing on themselves and their story and centering themselves in their story versus making for others. And I wanted that exploration to be a sort of pivotal point of this particular larger story of um, stories from women, uh, women identified in gender non-binary folks. So I've asked people to stitch me their story and or create it in any sort of fiber that they want. That's the sort of outward uh, project, but it's really a community organizing project and getting folks to get together to work on these in community and to support each other in exploring story and and building little micro communities um, that come together regularly to talk, share story, stitch, and just share space. And as these women and non-binary folks are creating pieces of art to tell their stories, Karen, you've been an ambassador for this project, bringing women together to work on their pieces. What is that like? It's wonderful. It's a great project. Uh, I actually, for years, have done adult craft classes at my local library as well as my local uh, thrift shop. I really have a good time bringing people together just to make things because people forget how to do that. Uh, Just because we're too old for summer camp doesn't mean we're too old to do craft projects. Um, So when Shannon put forth this idea, I was probably one of the first three people that emailed her about it because I was really excited by the idea of putting a person's voice down um, and and it really it really has been a lot of fun bringing all these different women together and talking to them about it. They seem really puzzled at first, and you start to talk about how they need to do something that reflects them and who they are. I'm really having a hard time with this answer. I'm sorry. Oh, no, this is beautiful. Karen, I was like, yes, all of this. (laughs) (laughs) How do you help somebody who's having trouble articulating their story through fiber? How do you help them find that? I try to convince them that you don't have to put things down that you're uncomfortable putting down on the fabric. And there's no mistakes. So just do it and be comfortable with it. You know, like you just relax. And, and it's amazing how people just, they feel so good once they've done it. I've got lots of people I'm still nursing along because what ends up happening is people get started and they get excited and then they go home and they, they have a hard time finishing. They need a little more encouragement. So Sounds like I a lot to... of it's just knowing that your art is not there to judge you. Yeah, exactly. It's there. I mean, like you do not have to put your name on it. It can be completely anonymous and it's going to be out in the world. What do you want to put out in the world? And people really feel feel good about it. And, you know, I'm not one to talk because I actually haven't finished my piece yet. Tell me about your piece. What are you working on? As I get older, I feel that it's important that we acknowledge that we've gathered so much knowledge as we live. What are the things that we learn and how can we take those things and pass them along to the next generation? So... I am very proud of the fact that I'm on my way to become a crone. And so (laughs) I am, my quote that I'm working on is, to thine crone self be true. To thy crone self. Oh my word, I love (laughs) that. To thine crone self be true. Um, I'm totally just, I'm wearing my croneness like a scarf and I'm going to go off into, you know, whatever I can to help people 
and to pass on the knowledge that I've gathered. Karen, who is your crone self? Who is my crone self? I am my crone self. I mean, I am, I, that's, that, you know, like I, I am embracing the crone. I have a lot of, of awesome crones around me that, I, that have taught me a lot. And I am not afraid of getting old and I'm not afraid of looking old. So I think that's, you know, something that I'm happy with and I want to put it out there. Is there one piece of knowledge that you can share that you feel like you've gathered most recently and that really feels like a part of this? Hmm. That's a hard question. It's just that, you know, don't worry about mistakes. You know, just, just do it and see how it comes out. And no mistake is permanent. There's always a way to fix it. I really like that. Shannon, what piece are you working on for this project? It took me a year to make my own piece um, because... I realized, you know, part of this project was forcing myself to make art about myself because I had not done that before. And so I spent a year making art about myself in order to get to the place where I felt like I could make a piece for history. So I have completed my piece for history. It is uh, a self-portrait. I'm holding a match that's on fire. Um, and it out of the fire comes all the words that I think sort of describe how I move through the world. Everything from instigator to feminist to uh, lesbian to, you know, just sort of all the identities that I think I contain. Shannon, when her story is all done, what are you going to do with it? Um, I have two visions for it. One is a massive public art piece where all of these stories are sort of stitched together but then used to skin 3D structures because I think the back of an embroidery tells sometimes an even more interesting story than the front side. So I, I want people to be able to experience both sides of that. And then an online museum you know, with photos of each piece and additional context from each artist that wants to provide it so that folks who can't be in space with the actual art, still get to see it and experience the story. And I hope it lives on as, you know, a really profound artifact of the time that we're living in and the stories that need to be shared. Well, Shannon and Karen, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, that was great. Thanks. Okay. Shannon Downey is a self-described craftivist. She joined us to discuss her work, including crowd-stitching a quilted map of the United States. Karen Fraser, who grew up in Pueblo, is stitching Colorado and is also part of another of Downey's projects, Badass Herstory. When we come back, is there a signature dish that defines Colorado? Green chili? What about the Denver omelet? Or maybe Rocky Mountain oysters? It's your chance to weigh in as we work to answer a Colorado Wonders question. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. Philadelphia has the cheesesteak, New York has its own style pizza, and Nashville, hot chicken. But what about Colorado? That's the question that we got through Colorado Wonders. Is there a food that just screams Colorado, or even Mile High City? CPR's Claire Cleveland scoured the menu to find out. Do we have a Denver omelet ready? Yeah. Thank you. There isn't one Colorado food that epitomizes us like the Philly cheesesteak does for Philadelphia. 
Rather, there's a whole list of foods that have both historical significance and serious staying power on Colorado's menus. Mexican hamburger, green chili, Denver, omelet, Rocky oysters. And the list goes on. We got this question from John Batty in Texas. His niece recently moved back to Texas from Colorado after her stepfather died. Batty wants to make her an iconic Colorado dish for Christmas to remind her of home. So we talked to food historians and the owners of some of Colorado's oldest restaurants to determine this iconic food. But we didn't find a clear winner. This is where you come in. We've decided to put it up for a vote over the next month to let Coloradans have their say. Today, we'll profile the contenders. Think of it as your food voter guide. Sam Bach, a historian at History Colorado, starts us off. What comes to mind for me in terms of Colorado's iconic foods is the green chili. That soup-like, spicy green stuff is everywhere in Colorado. Eat it in a burrito, smother your burrito with it, eat it as a soup with a tortilla. Really, the possibilities are endless. It's made with tomatoes and pork, and it's, it's kind of a stew, and it shows this collision of cultures that happened because of mining. Um, of course, Italian migrants came to Pueblo in the early 20th century to mine coal, and there they encountered the chili. Their um, Hispanic neighbors were eating chilies, and they would take the ingredients and the flavors of all these cultures and kind of smash them together, and that's where we get Colorado green chili, which is really prevalent up and down the Front Range and in the San Luis Valley. It's a very unique dish that you don't find anywhere else. Pueblo is the home of Colorado's green chili. At Gray's Coors Tavern, they make a lot of the spicy green stew and have been for decades. But they also make another iconic Colorado food, and it's number two on our list, the slopper. Dean Gray is the owner of Gray's Coors Tavern. Um, a guy named Herb Casebear used to own Herb's Sports Shop over here on, around the corner. He used to come in all the time and order food and, uh, from the old owners, the Gricos, and uh, he would come in and say, can I get a burger and some chili and just slop it all up? And so every time he'd come in, they started calling, just give me one of those sloppers. While Gray claims his family's tavern is the birthplace of the slopper in the 1950s, others credit the Star Bar, also in Pueblo. Nonetheless, green chili, the soup, the sauce, it's number one on our list. The slopper is number two. And the third, well, it also has something to do with green chili. It's the Mexican hamburger, and it was invented in Denver. Basically, you have a grilled hamburger patty, um, and then you uh, put it in a flour tortilla. You have some um, refried beans, and then you pour some green chili over it and put some cheese. So it's, it's kind of like a hamburger burrito in a way, a hamburger patty burrito. And speaking of cheese and burgers, the cheeseburger supposedly got its start here. So we'll make it number four on the list. In 1935, the cheeseburger was almost trademarked by Lewis Ballast, who owned the Humpty Dumpty Drive-In, also known as the Barrel, at the intersection of Spear and Federal. Here's Bach again. He wasn't the first to put cheese on a burger, but he certainly was the first to try and file the trademark. Lewis was experimenting with all kinds of different things to put on the burger, and none of them except for the cheese was very successful. So he tried peanut butter, which is not that good. He tried Hershey's bars, not that good. No one really wanted to buy those. But then he put the cheese on it, and that really was what started bringing people in. Ballas never completed the trademark paperwork, but his family did put a plaque where the Humpty Dumpty used to be, claiming it was the birthplace of the cheeseburger. For food number five, we go to the Buckhorn Exchange in downtown Denver. Edgar Garcia cooks between three and 500 pounds of this food a week. Rocky Mountain Oyster has been around for centuries, obviously. Um, I heard a story from other people that 
in older years, in, in years past, you had to use every part of the animal. You're not able to, or you wouldn't allow to waste any food. So therefore, somebody came up with the idea of eating Rocky Mountain oysters. Mm -hmm. So since then, we've been uh, peeling them, frying them, and eating them. So that's as simple as that. In case you haven't caught on, Rocky Mountain oysters are not from the ocean. They're breaded and deep-fried bull testicles, and I tried them with Garcia. Soft on the inside. Mm-hmm. They're really good. Yeah, it tastes just like fried yeah. and horseradish. Mm-hmm. They're good. They're nothing uh, out of the ordinary, I don't think, you know, mm-hmm. until you find out what they are. That's it, yeah. To continue the trend of foods that are named after a place, how about the Denver omelet? Ham, onions, green bell peppers, and oftentimes cheese. It obviously brings Colorado and the Mile High City to mind, but its origins are a little murky. Adrian Miller, a soul food historian, says the omelet may have ties to Chinese immigrants. So some believe that it is a riff on uh, egg foo young, which would have been an Americanized kind of Chinese, get all kinds of leftovers, put them together in an egg dish. Uh, And so um, there were certainly some Chinese immigrants here in Colorado, but they were more prevalent on the West Coast, especially in places like San Francisco. So some believe that the Egg Fu Young probably started there and may have migrated with immigrants to Denver. So it's unclear if it started in Denver, but Denver certainly took on its name. We have just two contenders left. The historians pointed us to microbrew beer. It's not a food, but we're including it because of its significance to Colorado. For example, former Governor John Hickenlooper opened the Wincoop, the first brew pub in Colorado in 1988. Not to mention, we're home to many, many, many other microbreweries. The last food Colorado is known for is actually a whole category, known as fast casual dining. The state was dubbed the cradle of fast casual by a national marketing group. Think about it. Noodles and Company was the pioneer, followed by Chipotle, Modern Market, Smashburger, and others. So we're calling it our eighth contender. Eight different foods that all represent Colorado. But we want to know, what is the Colorado food? That will be up to you. We'll have polls online at CPR.org and on our Facebook and Twitter. Go vote, and may the most Colorado food win. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. What do you wonder about when it comes to Colorado? Send us your questions at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Tomorrow night, the Colorado Music Hall of Fame will host a concert ceremony at the Mission Ballroom in Denver for the induction of its Class of 2019. The event, billed as Going Back to Colorado, will honor artists who've made their mark on the state's music scene over the years, including the late rock guitarist Tommy Bowen, funk legends the Freddie Henchy Band, and the 1970s psychedelic blues rock group Zephyr. Another inductee and featured performer for the evening will be Otis Taylor. The Boulder blues man tackles tough social issues in his music, often singing about the minority experience like his own as an African-American. In 2015, Taylor shared with Colorado Matters the secret to the success behind his years of performing. I don't read music. I, I can't play like other people. I can't bar a guitar. 
I'm just a balladeer. You know, I, I hire great musicians. That's it's, it's kind of like if you have a great football team, you hire the the front line. You know, you're, you're in good shape. And I always tell people I'm a illusionist, like a magician. <laughs> and the part of the illusion of a concert is you go to see a concert, you see the concert for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever, and people feel good, they walk away, but they don't know what it took for you to get there because that's part of the illusion of all the, you know, sitting in an airplane for 20 hours or waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning to fly to another city to get the airport at 6 and then go to do sound, check on a hotel, do sound check, then eat, then play, then get back up at 3 or 4 in the morning again, you know, because you're going to different countries in Europe. People don't see that part because that's not what they're supposed to see. I'm alive Be dead soon Nobody sees me Nobody sees me My big black man Got dark, dark eyes Big, big man Got dark, dark skin Nobody sees me Nobody sees me Otis Taylor will be inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame's Class of 2019 on Tuesday night, set to perform alongside fellow inductees, the Freddie Henchy Band, with tributes to rock greats Tommy Bowen and Zephyr also on tap. The event will be held at Mission Ballroom in Denver. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News.